Welcome to the Waste Not What Not podcast. I'm Philippa Ross, human ecologist, enthusiologist, author and energy healer, bringing you inspirational interviews, news and tips to rebuild the relationship between people and the planet, the way nature intended, by revitalising our natural resources, minimising waste and maximising human potential. I trust you'll discover seeds of hope for a vibrant future so you can cultivate and transform them to suit your own lifestyle in order for us to collectively create a world where reverence for the diversity of all life is honoured. You'll find all the show notes in the description and lots more about me and my work at philipparos.com. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, be sure to share far and wide. Hello, Wastebusters. Welcome to episode 44. Holy macaroni, what a week. It's been head down and bum up, compiling two 15-minute clips that contain the very best of six interviews. That's five hours of interviews squished into 30 minutes. No mean feat, even if I do say so myself. Why did I subject myself to this? Well, I'm proud to say I've entered the New Zealand Podcast Awards in the Best New, Best Interview, Best Independent and Best Factual categories. The Listener's Choice category will be released in mid-November, so keep those ears tuned in for news and links so you can vote for me. The finalists will be announced around the same time. One reason I'm telling you this is because it's put me behind in bringing you this week's episode on time. But hey, there's only so much a girl can do in a day. There's a fab new podcast just been launched by the International Only One team the action platform that sparks change for people on the planet. To date, they've helped protect nearly 344,000 kilometres of oceans, planted just over 655,000 trees, removed nearly 20,500 kilograms of plastic, planted 12,000 corals and reduced 1,641.5 tonnes of carbon. The podcast is called Upwell, There's a link in the show notes. Back here in New Zealand, my guest sustainability consultant Leo Murray is creating his own solutions to spark change for people on the planet, sowing seeds of wisdom cultivated from a place of reverence for nature to minimise waste, build soil and increase community resilience. But first news from some of my previous guests. Builder Nigel Benton from episode 30 is making great headway in the building industry after speaking at the Master Builders Conference, the Building Out Waste Seminar at Unitech and the Auckland Council Customer Advisory Group. And he's now working alongside James Hardy, a global manufacturer of building materials and fibre cement products. Sustainable Salons from episode 41 scooped up three wins at the Circle Awards in Australia for the best business-to-business and best materials and processes, as well as the main Judges' Choice Award. Dr Rodolfo Verno, my guest in episode 35 about the inaugural World Cruel Day, is now in Tasmania for the start of the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources meeting awaiting a decision on marine protection proposals for East Antarctica, the Weddell Sea and the Antarctic Peninsula. Fingers crossed for a positive outcome on Friday the 4th of November. Pat Armistead from episode 20 is currently pacing the floor waiting to hear news of an opportunity to sell her art in New York. 
and Franco Hecke from episode 11 is holding a New Year's Spirit Festival called Resolution between the 29th of December to the 2nd of January. Link in the show notes for tickets. I have no doubt regenerative farmer Greg Hart, who I spoke to in episode 40, would have been behind the farmers' protest on Thursday, who came out in force to protest against the government's plans to introduce a tax levy on agricultural gases and biogenic methane in 2025. Our dearly beloved Prime Minister believes people will buy into her ideology that New Zealanders would be proud to be the first country to do this, and it would make our farmers the best in the world, and it would be best for the world. This innovative fart tax proposes to offset burps produced by 26 million cows and 6 million sheep. It's farcical. Why aren't we looking at the imbalanced levels of exporting we're doing, selling goods globally only to import the same, if not more? It would save a frickin' fortune in money, never mind the carbon. But what the hell do I know? Someone who makes a lot more sense is my guest Leo Murray, a big-picture, heart-centred sustainability consultant who is breathing life back into our relationship with nature, helping people appreciate the network of systems that provide the gift of life and that they're an integral part of nature's team. Welcome to the show, Leo. It's really lovely that when you're talking to basically thin air and asking people to get in touch and suggest anyone who would like to come forward, you yourself emailed me and I thought, how delicious. I cannot refuse this request. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to connect to someone who really gives a shit. It's good for me to know that there is at least one person listening and some of the connections, the people that I've interviewed before, you referred to Trish Allen, who spoke about permaculture. And what do you call her? The fairy godmother of permaculture? (laughs) She's taught a lot of people permaculture and she doesn't have children of her own. And I think she takes a lot of people under her wing and she's a very wise woman and we're very lucky to have her here in Aotearoa, yeah. She's a very, very gentle, knowledgeable soul, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. And Franco Hecke, who I interviewed February, March time as well. Um, You know him. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you a musician? Yeah. Yeah, DJ. So Ah. during the week, I'm a sustainability consultant. And then on the weekend, I'm partying professionally, which, (laughs) you know, you have to celebrate life. You know, we're out there advocating for a livable future, sort of celebrate the present moment. Do you write your own songs or do you play an instrument? I wouldn't call myself a real musician, but I've been mixing music together for about maybe 15 years now and it's taken me around the world. And I had a bit of a crisis of meaning after seven or eight years of that being my music career. So I came back to Aotearoa and to start a purpose workflow around creating change and environmental advocacy. And that sort of just wound up focusing on waste. I call myself a sustainability consultant, but most of the invoices that were getting paid were from waste consults. And so um, that was how Why Waste, the company that I've created, has come to be. Mm-hmm. And because it's something that everyone agrees on. It's not divisive or polarizing what kind of background or gender or ethnicity or whatever. Everyone agrees that waste is just stupid and we, we just need to do a bit more about it. Yeah. What was it of your crisis that got you onto this path? Had you always been concerned about the environment? 
I think the way that I was raised was always very connected with nature. Our family were sailors. And so I spent a lot of time crossing oceans and voyaging. And that connection was so sort of close to home. Mm. And then you grow up. And if you're not a little bit sensitive to nature and what it's going through as a result of our civilization, you're not really paying attention. And attention is something that I do bring. And you can't really just sit by and watch it. I was expressing myself creatively and I had a hunger to see other cultures and see how people do life because mm. I wasn't quite convinced that Kiwi version of the American dream was the answer to my inner desires of the heart. I suppose the, that crisis that I mentioned was having a degree that allowed me to learn all about the world's problems, but higher education doesn't necessarily bring about solutions. And so that's what led me to permaculture as a way to have a bit of hope about the future and then have some practical steps about moving towards it. What is your degree? I did a triple major in political science, media studies and international relations. Wow. Oh, I was just really curious about how the world operates. It certainly was very revealing about the broader patterns of civilization and society and all these apes with extra digits and frontal lobes, sort of pretending that we're all really advanced, but being cognitively enslaved to a fairly Our slow human evolutionary forms. process. Yeah. It's interesting because the interview I did just before yourself was with a chap called Keith Jackson, and he has just this year had an upgrade, and he is now talking to realms in the universe, which is so very different to being a general manager. It's just phenomenal the entities that he can connect to. We are very limited in our form and our way of thinking. Going out there and exploring the world to see how people do things differently, I guess opened your mind to different perspectives, you know, with the cultures and respecting it and really going back to basics. Did you, in your travels with the sailing and things, did you come across a lot of waste and things? Was it something that was on your radar at the time? Not to the degree of where it's at now. I think things have escalated significantly in like very recent years. It sort of is where everything winds up. I suppose like the reason why I referenced that upbringing, it was never really the waste that I suppose inspired me to dedicate my life to creating positive change. It was more the love that I felt within me as a part of nature instead of apart from nature yeah, yeah, and acting from that place of love instead of from a place of fear of what I stand to lose when it's gone. Yep. And I think that's what drives a lot of people is they'll see waste or an ecosystem might be collapsing or not what it was when they were a child, or maybe they don't go fishing and they can't get their limit anymore. And you know, there's various like ways that we feel the truth. Yep of what we hear in the news or what we might read on the internet about climate change or ecosystem Mm -hmm. collapse. I feel like that whole approach has actually missed the mark. If you sort of think back to the 70s or the 80s, the ideology of saving the whales wasn't because if we don't save the whales, we're all going to die. It was, we're going to save the whales because the whales are cool. Like, how wicked are whales? They're so choice. Like, they're just cruising around, being all beautiful. and now. That narrative has changed and it's switched. And now it's like, oh, if you don't take out the recycling, your grandchildren aren't going to have a future. It's based in guilt and shame and fear. 
I'm a fairly strong proponent for generating the willpower to act from a place of becoming and belonging. I spoke to Glenn Edney. I don't know if you've come across him. He's done a lot with Wales. He's in Tudakaka here and Rodolfo Werner for the First World Krill Day. And it's really the education on the larger ecosystem. And that, as you say, we are a part of and people just don't see the bigger picture all through life. I mean, this is one of the problems I had at school because I failed everything drastically is because I found everything was so segregated and separate bits of information that actually I could not put it together. Nothing seemed to relate to anything else. And I think now it's really important for people to get the message that we are a part of this ecosystem and the environment affects us. And I firmly believe that the state of the ocean and the entire ecosystem as well is a reflection of our human health at the moment. All the shits come to the surface. I mean, there's so much shit on on the ocean and on the planet, um, the land, but also the amount of diseases that have come to fruition. I don't know if you've come across Dr. Zach Bush. He's phenomenal on soil health, which is one of your strengths and loves. He's talking about the effect that Roundup and glyphosate has had on human health. He's got a, the patterns and the graphs about, you know, all the asthmas and all the things that have come to fruition since it has been used and been part of the soil and is now part of the water. And again, it's for people to understand the soil, the air and the water are all part of an ecosystem that keeps us alive and keeps all living beings alive. And we have to do something about it because we respect and revere life, really. Damn right. I was saying about your forte on soil because you started up a company called Why Waste and your love is with the soil. Where did that come from? I think um, Trish. (laughs) Definitely Trish has got a, a part to play in that. I studied organic horticulture, so I got to learn about soil. But before that, I was just real lit on, I suppose, growing my own veg, really big on sort of food sovereignty and personal resilience. And homegrown veggies just taste better. They're just better for you. They've got no roundup on them. And then I was essentially applying permaculture design to business systems that weren't working you start out as a permaculture designer and, and you do all these designs for people's backyards or their properties and you hand them the final design and they, they like stick it on their wall and then like it might not even get implemented, you know? And that's kind of heartbreaking when you're doing it to really affect the world and create a positive change. And so I, I thought, actually, I don't want to just do designs for like wealthy landowners. I want to do designs for businesses. You know, I, I'm fairly convinced that change needs to come from the public sector with the government and legislation and decisions, but also from the private sector, it's really important that businesses get on board. And that moves out into the sociosphere where people can see it being modeled and then bring it into their personal lives. But waste was always an issue, but in particular, biodegradable waste or organic waste. If you look at the, the harm factors of different waste streams, if you put it in a landfill, it's just going to stay there like fairly inert for a thousands and thousands of years but it's not necessarily going to tilt the balance of our biosphere by doing that but when biodegradable waste breaks down in a landfill so in anaerobic conditions it produces methane which is 30 times worse than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas 
I helped the Tauranga City Council do an audit of the city's waste and over half of the city's waste was biodegradable. And yeah, so yeah. if you're offering solutions and you see that over half of the whole city's waste stream is also like one of the more problematic substances, then try and like get a bit creative about how to maybe solve that. And yeah. with sustainability and in particular waste, we've always just picked the lowest fruit first. Like right. we were recycling aluminium ages ago because you can make a lot of money from it. Glass has always been recycled. Plastic is a bit problematic because sometimes it makes money and sometimes it doesn't. And now China isn't buying it and all this kind of stuff. But really up the top of that big solutions hierarchy is waste because you can't make heaps of money from it. All the big companies don't want to touch it. Probably why it's being ignored. (laughs) Yeah. cynic that I am. Yeah, it's probably why it's been ignored. Totally. And here I am, like I'm young. I didn't have a family. I'm not in debt. I suppose I'm not beholden to a whole bunch of shareholders or something so i can make stupid business decisions like focusing on the least profitable waste stream i think why waste is probably diverted close to half a million kilos of waste from landfill over the years we're just starting to scale up now and so there's a business case there it just needs a lot of really gentle massaging into place I've just moved to Wellington to set the service up here at the request of the council and they seeded us with some seed funding to set up here. And so now I'm just trying to get the word out and the capital, which is desperate for solutions. The leadership here is 20 years ahead ideologically, but it's like 20 years behind in terms of all of the hard infrastructure and they can't collect biodegradable waste very effectively here because of the terrain. Like There's so much wind and so many hills that collecting compost is quite low down on the priorities. And so the solution we offer is really simple. Instead of centralizing the waste and sort of taking it to this mythical away place that doesn't exist, we just provide people with a worm farm and then we visit that worm farm once a month. It's vermicomposting offered on the circular economy. One of the key tenets is access over ownership. What we're seeing with regard to access over ownership is a lot of things in the future are becoming services or subscription-based. Yep. And another side effect of that is that things often become quality over quantity because if you're going to offer something as a subscription, you want to get the best possible thing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's going to have diminishing marginal returns. And so we have the best possible worm farms made in New Zealand. And if something breaks, we just piece out we send it back they melt it down make new pieces with it we're really just trying to bring the circular economy into a decentralized methodology of essentially empowering people to take care of their own shit i did a number of composting workshops when i was living in a yp i was helping someone run them but there's also the bokashi as well so if you don't have access to outsides they are very effective and you can put bones and all sorts but i think it's also changing a behavior which is one big thing and getting away from that what's in it for me mm. is a biggie what do they then do with that bakashi bin waste bakashi is a really interesting way of treating waste because you essentially ferment it it emerged in japan in their high-rise built environment Ah. and so it's really great for smaller households that uh, pickle their waste and then of course it does need to go somewhere and so in Japan they have areas where they can drop it but New Zealand doesn't quite have that infrastructure so Bokashi is a little bit trickier if you're in a dense environment but in a suburban or peri-urban situation in Aotearoa 
Bokashi is great because you can just throw it in your compost or dig a hole. We have people on our worm farm subscription that find that Bokashi works really well with the worm farm because the worm farm can be on their deck or in their garage and their Bokashi goes in the worm farm and together the solutions work really well because without the Bokashi, worms can't eat bones or meat or citrus or fat. Mm -hmm. But once it's been fermented, they can. That's been working really well for us. But I don't go around recommending Bokashi to everyday New Zealanders because we've got a bit more space and most people can handle having a worm farm or a compost. Bokashi works great for folks who don't have that outside space or maybe they have a smaller household. But I'm interfacing with a family of five or six and you'd fill your Bokashi bin up really quickly. Yeah. So it's really great for elderly folk or people living alone. So what about the problems of vermin with composting and worm farming? Is that a problem? With the worm farms that we use, they're called the hungry bin. They have steel legs that suspend the worm farm above the ground. We have never had any vermin in our worm farms, but it's common for people to make a worm farm out of anything, out of a bathtub or some containers. Or a lot of people's composts are worm farms without them knowing because the worms have found their way in there. Uh, They're smart. They they know where it's at. We live in an ecosystem and every single niche needs to be filled. And nature is doing a very good job of that. And there is a role. We get a bit creeped out by certain things. Like if there's maggots in your worm farm, we're like, oh, even though maggots are like, I think can eat two and a half times their weight a day and a worm can only eat one times of its weight a day. So maggots are really effective at reducing <laughs> waste. We get a bit spooked by them. So we're like, Unless oh, you're a fisherman, I can't do maggots. Maggots and rats, <laughs> you're welcome to them. <laughs> but I appreciate their role in the bigger picture. <laughs> Instead of applying our conditioned judgment to non-human beings i just appreciate that hey i love that you're here but like maybe not right now or can you go over there please but when it comes to rats and mice you know they can kind of create quite a lot of damage if they're in and around your home i've had them chew through pipes and whatnot and so around my compost i have traps and i'll put a bit of peanut butter out there and right they'll have their last bit of meal If we're going to have these beautiful lifestyles and these nice dry homes, we can expect, especially around winter, that the rats and the mice want to come and move in. I don't blame them, but um, I don't have any qualms about catching them and killing them. Death is a part of life. But if people are really a bit squeamish about rats and mice, yeah, they're probably not the ideal people to have a compost in their backyard. And that's when I would recommend they get a worm farm. It's also no different to just throwing all your scraps in the rubbish bin and then putting the bag out on the street. You always see rats and mice are just eating people's rubbish and then the rubbish is strewn everywhere. It's really important that we separate the biodegradable waste yep. from the yep. plastic because that's what makes it all go funky is mixing it all together. Yep. Whereas if we separate our waste streams out, it never actually gets too smelly or too bad. The plastic's clean and all the organics is in the worm farm and all the yep. aluminium's going over there and the steel's going over there. I live on my own, so I don't produce an awful lot. and. I just moved up here about four months ago and my bin outside is only a third full and it doesn't smell because it hasn't got biodegradable stuff in it, basically. Yeah, it is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. With a worm farm, what they're doing is popping out the waste, aren't they? And then you can use that for like fertilizer for soil, can't you? That's right. So 
worms help build the surface of the earth. And without that top three or four inches, we wouldn't really be here. This is really fundamental building blocks of photosynthesis and the biosphere and carbon cycles and oxygen and nitrogen. I've got a lot of gratitude to the worms. And when we feed the worms, they do their thing. And yeah, they crap out what we commonly call worm castings. And that is incredible uh, amount of not just fertility, but biologically living fertilities. You're not just feeding your soil, but you're inoculating it at the same time. And they also wrap their castings with this kind of mucus that makes it not water soluble immediately. And so unlike other fertilizer, which sort of just runs across the soil and into the rivers and into the oceans and enriches everything and algal blooms and all this gnarly stuff, worms will actually put like a little bit of a timer on their fertility so that it slowly integrates into the soil system. That's amazing. Oh, it's incredible. A lot of people really get real lit about the worm we yes yeah and you often see it at the farmer's market or the school gala or something in like a bottle with a lid on it and it's probably been on a shelf for a couple of weeks and they're selling it like this magic potion one myth that you know i hate to bust for our listeners is that they're actually selling snake oil really because as soon as you shut that worm tea off from oxygen it's going to die And it will have some chemical value, but the main reason why worm tea is so valuable for plants is because of its biological component. And if that biology is dead, then it's not going to do anything for your plants. Oh, wow. Is that the same from all the juices from the Bokashi bin? Yeah, that's definitely alive. If you're fermenting something, you're talking about like trillions of yeast cells and different microorganisms. And when you introduce that to your soil, as a compost tea, as worm tea or bokashi, you're essentially jump-starting the soil in order for any chemistry, like any of the fertility that we apply, for any of that to be taken up by a plant, it needs to be communicated by a microorganism. So it's the soil biology that makes chemistry plant available. And so without life in the soil, the plants can't really take up nutrients. So with the Bokashi juices, I've been told that you dilute it one to 10 because it is so acidic, I guess, because it's fermented. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I've heard that too. I've tried to track down where that came from and kind of like one of those old wives tales or something. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've been throwing just raw worm tea on plants for years now and I've never had a plant act like it's in an acidic environment right um but I'm not going to go on the record and be like there's nothing underpinning that myth maybe instead of 10 to 1 maybe go 1 to 1 I suppose the more common answer that I give people is unless you're applying anything as a foliar spray If we spray something on a plant, and there are reasons why we might do that to increase fungal diversity or bacterial diversity so that the plant isn't, say, being attacked or predated on by various organisms. Unless we're doing that specifically and intentionally, we shouldn't be watering the plants anyway. We should be watering the soil beneath it. If you're putting worm wee straight onto the soil, you don't need to dilute it because the worm built that soil. That's their realm. It's interesting what you think you know and how it came about. But as you say, they made Mm. the weast and it would normally go straight in. So why would you dilute it? Yeah. 
lots of understandings and misunderstandings but you know humans are we do we get up to some crazy stuff like <laughs> it's pretty hard to make sense of the world and everything's encapsulated in narratives and mythology it's good to be able to sort of help steer it into a more reasonable or life-affirming direction again like i was saying earlier being able to relate to the story and the origin is as you say worm pee is worm pee and they would not dilute it if they're because they're part of the ecosystem so why would we interfere because we're really good at doing things like that thinking we know better is there any other myths that you can think of that need busting one thing that i think humans are really great at that needs addressing is just we all seem to be really focused on the symptoms but never the causes we'll just rush out to build this new technology that solves this really pressing problem. But we never really go, oh, hey, why does that problem even exist? Does it need to? Is this a culturally embedded thing? Or is this something that we got handed down through this economic system that none of us really consented to in the first place? Our ancestors were just doing the best with what they had, but there's such a poor lack of design in the way that we interact with the world, uh, each other and ourselves, that there's just a lot more room for improvement. So that's the main piece that I'm trying to draw people's attention to is just like, instead of fixing the problem, spare a little bit more bandwidth to why the problem exists in the first place and maybe look at that. Yeah, it's like Trish says, you know, turn off the tap. Everything is all about looking at the solutions and the waste. And it's like, well, how come this waste is being created in the first place? And it's the same for human health, you know. Um, What's Mm. your symptom in such a tunneled vision? As you say, with great respect to the people that have gone before us, but actually we need to look a few centuries back and recognise that our ancestors were connected to nature. You know, you look at the Egyptians and the Mayans, they were highly intelligent and highly tuned in and a part of nature. So they call it alternative, but it's the original. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of like a, a civilizational narrative that's gripped the contemporary world, which is that humans are somehow not just separate from nature, but somehow better. Really, we're just this slither of a fingernail within this broader story of life. And I think we sometimes get a bit carried away with how important we are in this cosmic order. And that hubris is ultimately leading to uh, a self-terminating species story. If there's any one thing to feel frustration or grief or despair about is really just the fact that we've got all this embedded supremacy inside of us. And it's not just gender supremacy or ethnic supremacy. It's a species supremacy that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. completely tearing the fabric in the network of living systems that yep. are providing the context for us to enjoy the gifts of life. If we're really going to talk about the issues, for me, waste is just a vehicle for communicating big picture ideas. Everyone can agree that seeing a beer bottle at the beach or a mask in the gutter is heartbreaking, but enabling people to see and question their inherent anthropocentric bias is really really valuable and 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 so to to flesh that out we're living in the anthropocene the time of the humans essentially yeah and we're like at the top of this pyramid where everything flows to the top and there's only really a, a couple of 
thousand people at the top and then all the humans pay to support them and then all the non-human beings pay to support the humans and it's a very extractive system which is that again. The, it's all asked about tit really isn't it it really is that's the reason <laughs> that i did the podcast because my background is in psychology and i have a love of the environment and talking to so many different people about the things they're passionate about and how they're life has evolved and what they've learned there is so much and everything is interconnected and i think it is an appreciation of that that is so important and it's just missing big time yeah how do you inspire that appreciation or disrupt the patterns that are preventing that appreciation and, and normally it's destruction when the shit hits the fan that's when people will sit up and think about something so when something is being mm -hmm. destroyed or their life is not going the way they had expected. And that is a lot of what's happening. And I think Mother Earth is doing her thing and disrupting an awful lot. And, you know, as I'm talking to Keith, it's really creating the new earth and a new dimension of way of thinking and being a part of the big ecosystem and recognizing ultimately we're all equal and we all belong and there's no need to feel separate from it. Did you ever come across Nikki Hare, the professor of psychology at Auckland University? No. She's incredible. She wrote a book called Psychology for a Better World. She's essentially dedicated her whole life to understanding how human brains work and how our psychological set affects our decisions. And then in sort of like the latter half of her career, she just steered it all towards sustainability and uh, ecosystem health. Oh. And so, yeah, that book, Psychology for a Better World, is really, really, really valuable. And then she wrote another book called The Infinite Game. And that draws a really broad pattern around how natural systems have infinite parameters. Yeah. And then unnatural systems, which are often designed or badly created <laughs> by humans, yeah. exist within these finite parameters where all the costs are externalized and everything's just really leaky and sort of linear contribute to like the ongoing co-popper of the podcast if this is your inquiry highly recommend checking out nikki hare she represents aotearoa really really well on the global community and very very powerful teacher so cool which leads me into my question. question you know is there a book and or a person that has influenced you in your mm. life i think the main teacher that i've studied under for maybe five or six years now is Charles Eisenstein. Yeah. He, oh, I've spent weeks with him in retreat spaces in Wananga and conferences. Everything he writes is just so on point. I would steer folks to the book, A More Beautiful World Our Heart Knows Is Possible. Yeah, it's, Greg Hart was talking about that one. Yeah. Yeah, nice. It's on my list. Because when I ask these questions, I obviously I give you warning as a, as a guest, and he sent me a whole page of all these books, and he's obviously highlighted the ones he's gone through. Yes, because <laughs> I'm a fiend when it comes to books. <laughs> nice. He's very articulate, and yeah. I think he draws a lot on Buddhism. Now, I've always steered clear of sort of established belief systems because. They all just seem to be embroiled in hypocrisy and have really bad track records. You know, Some of them are a dictatorship. Murder. You know, you have to do this, that, and the other to be an acceptable part of this. The thing I like about Buddhism is it, it is more of a concept. 
Yeah, it's not as prescribed. Yeah. Yeah, especially if your on-ramp is through the late Titnat Han. He really got the ecological piece really strongly and was able to bring it into a lot of his teachings. I've found that if there's one belief system that supports someone with a strong ecological bent or mm-hmm. leaning, that seems to be it. I suppose they all started off real awesome and then they all just kind of got successively interpreted by like well, I think they're still being bastardized. <laughs> I went to a convent school and that put me off religion big time because it is a dictatorship Mm. and you should and you're less than and all the rest of it. But I think the big thing that's for me in latter years, it is important to have a faith. And I think there is something bigger than us and Mm. whatever you want to call it, source, divine, God, and I call it energy. It doesn't matter but there is something outside of us and quite a lot outside of us because our perception of the universe, the galaxy is so small with our senses that that faith is important, I think, because it helps you connect to something bigger and actually helps you stay connected to your soul rather than leaving you aside, which is really why we're here is to make best of what we've been given, what we came in with to make the world a better place when we leave, when we transform to another realm, isn't it? Beautiful. Yeah. Love that for you. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a quote or anything that inspires you or have you made one up yourself? I had my birthday on Sunday and I had a bunch of people around and I'd spent like two days preparing and making this big feast. We blessed the food and, and the quote that emerged there and I need to find out where it came from. And I remember saying it at another event a long time ago and people attributed the quote to me but it wasn't mine so like I kind of got to come clean on that is if you have more than you need build a bigger table not a higher fence love it great concept that can be applied to so many things eh that's right well happy birthday to you for last weekend you sound like a very cheery chap but you're human like the rest of us so what do you do to get yourself out of a funk I grieve usually when I have a sense of overwhelm or depression or sadness or despair, they usually come in like a spectrum. Initially, it might just be like I'm ignoring something or I'm denying something or beyond that is like I'm distracting. And then beyond that is the overwhelm or the worry or the fear and the anxiety. And then that leads into depression. And so it sort of seems like there's this gated spectrum where you... I swear put it. Yeah, if I wind up all the way down where I've lost all hope and I'm like, why? Not necessarily, but I mean, there's an awareness earlier so you can lift your vibration earlier so you don't end up down. So what do you do on maybe various spectrums? Yeah, I suppose if it's sooner along that journey, I overdose on pleasure. I just connect. I love. I dance. Yeah, there's a lot of really amazing people in my life and it's usually the thing that really gets me down is often homo sapiens some days I wake up and I'm just like there's not a lot to love about our species but there are some really incredible people in my life and so I usually just try and connect deeply and authentically with those that I love but yeah if I'm further along that spectrum and I'm really like at rock bottom really really powerful is just to just feel it it's just actually grieve I had an amazing big cry two weekends ago by myself in a dock hut 
six hours walking in the rain in the Tarua Ranges, and it was just me and like some mushrooms and a fire that took me an hour to light because everything <laughs> was wet. And I had to pray this fire into existence. And it was finally lit, and I was feeling those mushrooms, and I just had a big, big outpouring of grief. Mm. And I walked out of that forest completely different the next day. That funk that I was in, I cried myself back to strength. And that is an evolutionary technology that has grown with our ancestors. It's just ridiculous that we shame it in society or our childhood. It's so lovely to hear a young man saying that because there is no shame and actually by denying it we are suppressing it which ends up in the body being diseased at a a later stage and it is cathartic and it's such an important part of our evolution to recognize you know I'm an enthusiologist but I can't be pinging off the ceiling all the time we have different frequencies up and down and that's the rhythm of life and the important thing is to embrace it acknowledge it because by denying it it just ferments inside us and like that percussion bin just it can explode and pickle i'll add one thing to it yeah is after 15 years of activism and advocacy i've seen a lot of people act from a place of frustration and from Mm -hmm. anger Mm. And they'll never, ever get the result that they're wanting because they're using the methodology of the old world. They're not going to create this new world with a fight mentality or a war mentality. And so coming from a place of actual deep feeling and Mm. sorrow and grief, it's always just going to be such a better result. Mm. The the kopapa, the action, the physical thing that's going to then come next is always going to be much more considered and be probably a a little bit more like on nature's team because you're not necessarily grieving yourself you're feeling nature's pain yeah and that is the best teacher that you could ever get as far as i'm concerned as your fairy godmother for today or for this moment is there one thing in the world that i could help become a reality for you that would make the world a better place Yeah, if you could just wave your wand and allow for people to remember that all the gifts that are given and see them as sacred so that they could hold them with reverence because reverence is the antidote to judgment and judgment is the mechanism of othering. Othering, interesting, nice. Can you And othering, othering is the function of separation. Yeah, 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 I'm with you. Yeah, fantastic. If we're not othering everything, then we can can belong. And that's what we humans are craving the most. It's the deepest psychological need that we have is to feel safe by the campfire and feel like we're a part of something. Reverse engineer that back to reverence and seeing the sacredness in everything. Lovely. What a lovely way to finish. Thank you so much for your time, Lario. It's been an absolute pleasure. Bless you. Take Thank care. you so much. Bye. See you, Truly enlightening, if only there were more Leos in the world. Don't forget, though, everything you do really helps. Keep separating your waste, the biodegradable and the recyclable. Some stuff that you can't include in your recycling bin is now being collected by the bigger stores. There's more soft plastic recycling in Northland with Countdown, New World and the warehouse in Whangarei and Kerikeri and Pack and Save Whangarei are now collecting so it can be transported to Future Post in Auckland who make fence posts and Save Board in Hamilton who are making building materials. 
Specsavers have a community programme that donates a portion of every glasses sale to local charities and the Fred Hollows Foundation that works to eradicate and avoid blindness for people in the Pacific regions. They're also grateful for your old glasses which are sent to people overseas. Next week I'll be talking to Delphine de Rouvroy about the unique powers of the uterus and how it strengthens the connection we have to ourselves. Make sure you follow or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out. All feedback and reviews are much appreciated, as are your suggestions for subjects or guests you'd like me to consider. Just email me on info at So until next week, dig deep, open your mind to a world of possibilities, live life with a generous heart and take steps to minimise waste and maximise your own potential. 